Sporting goods retailers are struggling. Are kids not playing sports anymore? On this Consumer Goods Edition of Industry Focus. Greetings, fools. Sean O'Reilly here at Fool Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. It is April 19th, 2016, and joining me in studio is the Fool's own resident polymath, Mr. Vincent Shen. What's up, Vince? I missed you. Polymath. I like that. It's yeah. a good one. Uh, I've I seen your presentation well. skills. You're good. Uh, how are you? How was your trip home? Uh, it was awesome. Um, it was. I went to uh, the Buckeye State, and it was 70 and sunny every single day. And the week previously, uh, actually, the running joke with my family was we would go to like a Target or a Sam's Club and all this stuff, and uh, there'd still be a pile of snow in in the parking. Oh, lot. really? It was. Wow. There were small piles, granted, but there was definitely, and it was just. It's absurd. It, Probably gone now after the weather we've had, even around here lately. Um, but uh, proof proof positive that uh, uh, jokes about Ohio's weather are they're there for a reason. <laughs> um, so before we dive into talking about struggling sports retailers, which um, we haven't touched a ton in the past, but um, you know it's it's a super interesting subject um wanted to dive into following up on a story that we covered a while ago which was ab inbev's proposed acquisition of sab miller yeah huge deal over 100 billion dollars right um and uh, you sent this to me this morning very interesting article in uh, the wall street journal um they accepted a bid i guess of 2.9 billion dollars in cash from japan's asahi group for sab miller's premium beer brands which are in and these are the european brands uh peroni grolsch i am totally butchering that if anybody <laughs> wants to correct me it's g-r-o-l-s-c-h i mean i took french in high school but anyway and uh british beer meantime um one that's a nice chunk of change two um this is just and what i wanted to highlight was that this is just the f- one of many divestitures that the, these companies are doing in order to get this deal done. Yeah, so we had discussed, you know, when the deal was first announced, we were breaking that down. You know, we always caveat some of these these bigger M and A uh, these deals that they signed that there is going to be some stipulations uh, and there's going to be some uh, things that they need to do in order to help uh, increase their odds of regulatory approval. And in this case, obviously, some of those divestitures. This being one of them, I think they received the offer from Asahi probably like uh, I think April, uh, February, or March. Yeah, and uh, now it's been finalized. So you mentioned, you know, Japan's eager to expand and get their hands on. This some is their first big acquisition outside of Japan in some time. Yeah, I yeah. think uh, I think they had a previously a pretty big deal around thirteen or fourteen billion dollars for like. Oh, that's right. The they bought Jim Beam, Jim Beam yeah. Maker's Market, of course. So. Uh, as you mentioned, you know this is one of many. What, what were some of the yeah? Some of the other so um, the first thing to go was, of course, um, this was like a given. This was totally going to happen. Was um, SCB's uh, SCB Miller's? I think it was forty-eight or fifty-two percent. I do think it was forty-eight percent. Um, SCB Miller's forty-eight percent interest in Miller Coors LLC, which was their joint distribution venture with Molson Coors Brewing. Of Ironically enough, they created that joint venture in order to compete more effectively with Budweiser's distribution. Um, Irony is the spice of life, I guess. Um, but uh, that definitely happened already. Um, in March, the company agreed to sell SCB Miller's Chinese beer business to China Resources Beer Holdings. Boy, they really got creative with that name. But um, that 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 was done in order to gain um, antitrust approval from the government of the People's Republic of China. Um, 
it's even after all these divestitures and all of these definitely need to happen in order to uh, close the deal. Um, the company, the combined entity, is going to have thirty percent global market share of the beer industry on this planet. Um, they're going to have ninety percent market share, and I saw this list. I mean, they're they're one hundred and ninety whatever countries on this planet. They're they're going to have ninety percent market share in like a couple of dozen Latin American and African countries. So. Wow. These definitely need to happen in order to, uh, and that's really the why they're doing it. They want to match up the South American and the African uh, beer uh, distribution of markets because those are this century going to see a lot of the growth and GDP growth and everything. And this is definitely a long game. So it's interesting too how you know just some of these. You know, we talk about the deal itself over hundred billion dollars. Some of these divestitures themselves are not. They're not this, small. This by is any a three stretch. billion dollar deal right here. You know, it's we have just this a line item. Asahi yeah. deal, three billion dollars, not small by any stretch. And also, the Miller Coors, you know, the joint venture you mentioned, you know, that was sold to Molson Coors for twelve billion dollars. And I did not know this until you know we started doing some of the research uh, originally when we were yeah. learning about CR Snow. You know, that's the number one selling beer by volume in the world. You know, obviously driven by a lot if it's popularity in the Chinese market, huge market, right? Right. But you know that deal was considering how powerful that is. You know, the number one selling. Beer brand by volume, you know that deal was only 1.6 billion. So that was generally seen as a very good deal for China resources. But uh, again, you know, obviously we should go them, get some snow. I've never tried it. it. I would I like we need to. to. Yeah. Anyway. So if hopefully we can try and find it at a, at a store around here. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, bottom line, uh, this is happening, and I do think the deal will eventually go through it. I actually, I, I kind of like it because they're they're positioning themselves for another century of growth in all these high growth markets and everything. So, anywho, uh, so before we dive into talking about the world of sports retailing, I wanted to point any listeners out there that are hungry for more foolish content to f- head over to focus.fool.com, where all industry focused listeners have access to a special discount on the Motley Fool's Stock Advisor newsletter. The discount works out to $129 for a full two year subscription. Once again, that is focus.fool.com. And uh, Vince, I guess we can let the cat out of the bag, or maybe it's out already, but uh, industry focus is now on Spotify. Yes, Did I'm glad that, that you mentioned that. I definitely wanted to to bring that up during the show today, at least so our listeners know, because you know I had not realized uh, until you know we were talking about this partnership where Spotify was moving into podcasts, and so it's awesome to be on there. We should we should play that song, uh, moving on up or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Vince, digging in here to the world of sports retailing, um, we're touching on a subject that I I kind of noticed just observing the retail world in the last 10 years um, but sports retailers are not doing so hot all right so you know obviously this is one niche of the right. broader retail space especially if you're thinking like retail and athleisure wear which is a big part of these businesses but I just thought it was interesting because it kind of reflects a lot of the challenges that a lot of retailers are having now and so you know we've heard a, l- uh, a little bit about these struggling brands, and probably a lot of us are familiar with them. So, think for a second about Sports Authority, right? So, huge chain. What was previously the largest, uh, you know, sports equipment chain, you'd call it, and uh, you know, the product of many, many acquisitions. It was taken private and a leveraged buyout deal, but they filed for bankruptcy protection in March. They're closing about 140 of their 460 locations, and. Their current owner is private equity firm Leonard Green and Partners. So they bought uh, in bankruptcy. Bought the thing. Oh no no! no. The, currently, okay, it's owned. It. Uh, they purchased Sports Authority for about one point three billion dollars. I think it was about ten years ago, 20, in two thousand six. And you know, over time, they've accumulated about one point one billion dollars of debt. You know, 
usually a pretty common uh, characteristic of these LBOs, and the company has just struggled to operate under that kind of debt pressure. Right. So in January, they missed an interest payment, and then since then, you know, they've been pretty actively looking for essentially a white knight buyer to come in and you know save the company. And though management mentioned that they received a lot of high uh, high interest from buyers, you know, nothing really uh, obviously came together. So they're in bankruptcy protection now. So. Interestingly, for fiscal 2015, uh, that ended uh, January 30th, 2016, the company had revenue of about $2.6 billion, so still you know, pretty big business. Like I said, 460 locations, but it had before tax losses of $156 million, according to the Wall Street Journal. And uh, you know, that's going to be a two-part auction. So on May 4th, they have leases for over 100 of their closing stores going up for sale, and then the remainder go of the assets, so you know, pretty much everything. Uh, potentially go up for bidding about uh, two weeks later on May 16th. Uh, there's been interest, obviously, from other competitors who are still going. So I think uh, privately held Academy Sports and Outdoors, Dick's Sporting Goods, Models, which is family owned, um, have all kind of uh, talked about the bidding process getting involved. And so on the one hand, you know, you have uh, competitors who might purchase assets and keep stores open as a going concern. But on the other hand, you have like liquidation firms that might outbid them and just buy out buy it out and liquidate all the assets. So it'll be interesting to see what's left of Sports Alert. You know, it's still a big brand. I'd be surprised to see every single store close. Yeah, no, that's wild. Um, what's the deal with uh, City Sports? So City Sports is a smaller example. That actually happened uh, about last October. So they're based out of Boston. Again, just another example. Smaller chain filed for bankruptcy uh, last year. They closed eight of their twenty-six locations, and uh, you know investors ended up buying out some of their intellectual intellectual property. So they're hoping to revive that chain. But in very recent news, and this is this just happened yesterday, we have Vestas Retail Group. So again, yet another example of like the dominoes falling at this point for this industry. Uh, so they operate a lot of big chains that I think people are familiar with: Easter Mountain Sports, Bob Stores, Sports Chalet, which is out in the West Coast. Um, they are run by Versa Capital Management, so this is a private equity firm. They're, uh, they acquired each of these chains separately and essentially put them under a single umbrella. So uh, they specialize in turning around some of these distressed businesses. So uh, Vestas was formed in 2012 after purchasing or after buying out Easter Mountain Sports and Bob's, and they added Sports Chalet in 2014. But the thing is, Sports Chalet was already like struggling significantly. Uh, they had been been in business for over half a century at this point. But they've been scarred by a lot of losses, declining results in the last 12 months. So, you know, they were public, and in their last 12 months as a public company, they reported $343 million in revenue, bottom line loss of $9 million, or 64 cents per share. And the th- uh, another big thing, as you'll notice, is their gross margins, for example, declined from about 38.5% in fiscal 2010 and 2011 to 26.7% by the time the company was And that, acquired. of course, implies they're just having to cut prices in order to move products, which is never good. So, you know, obviously they're struggling with their operations. So, you know, Sports Relay is done. Um, and then they're versus hoping to actually maintain uh, Bob stores and Eastern Mountain Sports. But uh, Vesta CEO Mark Walsh, and I wanted to mention this specifically, he cited online competition and warm winter weather as some of the drivers for the tough times that. The, the different I don't buy that winter weather thing, but <laughs> that's not a one-time thing. So you know, going bigger picture, you know, those are just some of the examples of the 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 brands or the chains that have fallen victim to this very competitive environment. But let's look at each of these potential drivers, right? So the short-term one that you just mentioned, you're a little bit skeptical about, is the warmer weather from this winter season. Uh, obviously, it's more of a one-time hit, and 
It might have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Exactly. But yeah. Uh, and, and the thing is, it was not a you know a small headwind by any stretch. You know, Dick's management uh, for Dick's Sporting Goods they managed uh, they mentioned that cold weather related categories were down double digits this past winter. That so right. that yeah. is not going to help a company that's already struggling. Right. So moving on to like a bigger picture, longer term trend. You know, we a lot of people uh, will want to just point like point to an Amazon.com as a reason why these companies have been struggling, right? Uh, we know that e-commerce online retailers have made it tougher and forced a lot of retailers to adapt. But I, I think that's a pretty uh, obvious connection. But at the same time, like if you think about sporting goods in general that these companies are involved in, you know, the internet has really changed how people shop for specialty items. Like if you think about uh, just how in the past, think, you know, 30 years ago, you might go to one of these these uh, stores and the sales associates will be specialists and they'll be the ones recommending to you, oh, your son should get this baseball glove or your daughter should get this pair of soccer cleats. It's really popular this season. And they're the experts. But now, you know, everything's online. I think Amazon reviews or just all this the This baseball glove got five stars. <laughs> just think about all the different, uh, you know, reviews on YouTube and on uh, different message boards, blogs around uh, these different sports and hobbies. And, you know, those are the places where you're getting a lot of expertise now. It's just changed where, you know, so 30 years ago, you go to the sales associate for that kind of expertise. Now you go to a sports authority, and the only thing they might do for you is check if there's stock in the back. Mm-hmm. So it's just uh, an interesting change in the dynamic. And then, uh, you know, another thing is just increased competition from other retailers and the suppliers themselves. Uh, you know, so for a, a company like this, a sports authority for or city sports, Nike might, for example, might be a huge supplier in terms mm-hmm. of retail and other equipment, and they have really important relationships with these brick and mortar operations. But you know, Nike's expanded itself into direct to consumer sales. That's like a big growth, yeah, uh, point yeah, yeah, for yeah. them. So you know, Nike, just as a single example, is generating twenty three percent of their sales now from direct to consumer in fiscal twenty fifteen. So that's about six point six billion dollars, and that's up twenty five percent over the previous year. And that's just up, and that's up from just two point two billion dollars, or thirteen percent of sales in two thousand nine. So in that what five six year time span, they have triple that number and you know that's money that's coming out of the pockets of these other more you know these brick and mortar retailers and under armor uh, as another example they're doing well above 30 percent of their sales direct to consumer so here's another example uh on that on even their own suppliers here who are kind of making the situation a little harder for them to compete in and then you also have the one of the you know the last things i want to talk about is specialization so if you have these different niches within sporting goods you know Athleisure wear, you might have premium wear, you go to Lululemon. But then if you want just something that's basic, cheaper, and you're you know on more of a budget, you might just go to a Walmart mm-hmm. or Target for yeah. what you need. So this you know, the environment for the retailers in this space is really difficult. Um, and so, you know, talking about some of the companies that have struggled, why they've struggled, I also wanted to talk about Dick's Sporting Goods because they're the big dog now. Uh, they were previously uh, second to Sports Authority, but they're actually, you know, one of the largest, you know, sports specialty retailers. They are the largest sports specialty retailer in the space now. And so they have $7.3 billion in revenue for the re- most recent fiscal year. And it gives it about 10 to 15% market share for this market. Uh, National Sporting Goods Association puts. This total market about sixty-four billion dollars annually, <clears throat> and recently, 
the company presented at the Bank of America Merrill Lynch Consumer and Retail Conference in March. And during the presentation, uh, you know, funny enough, one of the very first slides is titled Power of Omnichannel. Not surprising at all. It's like they stole the slide from Macy's or something. <laughs> uh, so, you know, keep in mind that the company has had about 39% compound annual growth from 2010 to 20. 15 for their e-commerce sales. And so people the, are going to dicksportinggoods.com and ordering a baseball bat on there. So some of the things that they're doing well, you know, in, in 2010 they had 140 million dollars of online sales, so it's about 3% of their top line. By 2015 it's 740 million dollars, over 10% of their top line. So obviously there's that shift in the pie. But also, you know, it's interesting because, you know, he talks about the physical footprint of of you know, Dick Sporting Goods still being a really important piece of the omnichannel strategy. And he says that if they enter a new market or an underserved market, uh, a new store opening will usually double e commerce sales in that region for them. And it has to do with the fact it's the idea instead of like this, uh, you know, the, I guess the main thing that they offer now, you know, before it may have been expertise, which still companies. Some companies still do, right? Like for an outdoor goods retailer, REI is really well known, and they're, they've been able to carve out a niche for customer service. They've been able to carve out a niche for a lot of the sales associates still have refusing that to open expertise. up on Black Friday, yeah, and little things <laughs> like that. But also, but you know, in a case like Dick's, where a lot of the a lot of it's commoditized. It's like we want to make sure the consumer can get what they want, however they want it. Be it pick up in store, ordering online, going to the store, and ordering through the store if like stock's not there, and just having everything they need lined up to fulfill what the cost the customer or the shopper wants. It definitely seems to me that um, you know the industry that you know the industry at large that we're talking about. It was just a case of there were too many players and somebody had to go. And the winner, obviously, in the situation for the um, not the high end stuff, but just the guy that needs a baseball bat or glove for his kid, uh, is is Dicks. I mean, they're clearly the winner. There's you know out west, there you got like the big five sporting goods and all that stuff. But um, which is you know just, which appeals also to the discount market as well, for sure. So yeah. you know, like I said, they've kind of carved out their niche, and and Dicks is is playing this uh, this broader strategy, but you know they're doing it in a really interesting way, and. You know, while these other stores are closing uh, a lot of locations, Dix has been expanding a lot. They've opened, I think, 200 new locations in the past few years, and I think part of that is expanding that footprint and the fact that it's helpful for them with like shipping the store and and become you know using these locations. Almost. Did you uh, happen to hear what they did with Sears? By the way, I no, think I it was not. at a Sears location in. Uh, this is like cobwebs of my oh you know what I, I, I think it was in king of prussia yeah king of prussia yes. mall yeah and they um sears i guess partitioned off the second level of a location there and then they sold a portion of it to dicks and like a long-term lease or whatever and that's obviously part of sears's plans to unlock the rally of their real estate but um yeah it's just interesting to see what they'll do with that if that's a possibility because then it all of a sudden is kind of like a distribution kind of front Retail thing for Omnichannel, mm -hmm. um, but uh, so you real know, quick, what did you think of a Dick's Sporting Goods just its, its valuation right now? It's at forty-seven, trailing earnings of two eighty. I mean, does that interest you at all? Well, the thing is, you know, surprising for me after reading enough about the, and doing some enough research about the industry, you think that the growth opportunity is not that great. But like I said, they've opened two hundred new locations over the past few years, and their current footprint's about six hundred and fifty stores. Management sees like the overall, uh, you know, long term 
uh, potential of at about 1,100 locations. And the thing is, if you compare them to other big box retailers, so to speak, like a Best mm-hmm. Buy, they are on the smaller end in terms of their number of locations. Right. So they do have that runway. Um, and, uh, you know, they are really focused on, uh, you know, things like e-commerce and driving productivity in those stores. They're bringing their e-commerce operation, for example, in-house to, to have better control over it and to, you know, uh, generate some savings there. So, you know, overall, just a really interesting business. And Yeah, you know, it definitely seems like they're the the current winner or something like well, that. The thing like, is, I don't know. You either look at it that way or you look at, you know... Uh, Maybe not smaller operations in the sense the stores are definitely smaller, but you you know you have a specialized company like a Lululemon, or you have have a company like REI or Cabela's, for example, where it's going to be focused more on the outdoors, hunting, firearms, and that you know being able to carve out that niche and to present that value to the shopper is really important because otherwise you know the this is just a very intensely competitive space right now. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, Vince. Uh, thanks for your thoughts, Vince. Have thanks, a good Sean. One. Appreciate it. If you're a loyal listener and have questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Just email us at industryfocus at fool.com. Once again, that is industryfocus at fool.com. And as always, people in this program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear on this program. For Vincent Shen, I am Sean O'Reilly. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!